0: Welcome to Lung Cancer Update, an audio review journal for oncology nurses. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. One of the most important recent treatment developments in medical oncology has been the evolution over the last three to four years of clinical research data supporting the use of adjuvant chemotherapy in non-small cell lung cancer, which is now an accepted and important part of practice, although unfortunately, a far smaller percent of patients go for attempted curative surgery in lung cancer compared to breast and colorectal cancer. I met with Dr. Alan Sandler for an update of this important area and others in the management of lung cancer, including the developments of new studies to further enhance the outcomes of these patients. Dr. Sandler began our conversation by commenting on the factors considered in the decision in adjuvant systemic therapy of lung cancer.
1: Number one is the actual stage of the patient. And of course, stage is broken down. Stage one, where there are just the tumor and no lymph nodes. Stage 2, where the lymph nodes that are involved are in close proximity to the tumor itself, so-called hilar or peribronchial lymph nodes. These are actually within the lung parenchyma. Or stage 3a, where the lymph nodes are outside the lung, but on the same side in the mediastinum. They may be along the esophagus or the trachea, for example. And I think that recently, over the past few years, there's enough data with clinical trials that show that adding combination platin based chemotherapy to patients after surgery does, in fact, improve the cure rate for patients whose tumors clearly have lymph nodal involvement, stage 2 or 3a, and there's controversy about the patients in stage 1. And then a very important aspect is what is their performance status upon completing the surgery. And I think it's very important for the listener to be aware that surgery in a lung cancer patient is not like surgery in a patient with breast cancer who may be undergoing a lumpectomy or colon cancer where a limited amount of bowel is resected. Certainly, those surgeries have their own morbidity, but I think it's pretty apparent That those patients undergoing partial lung removal, such as a lobectomy, or certainly a pneumonectomy, where an entire lung is removed, is quite a morbid procedure. These patients have lots of tobacco-related comorbidities to begin with. And so performance status postoperatively is critically important, that these folks are actually going to be able to tolerate chemotherapy. We usually wait anywhere from four to eight weeks after their surgical procedure to ensure that they have recovered enough from their surgery. And so that really can't be overstated enough.
0: It's interesting you mentioned the fact that this has been fairly recent, and really it's only been the last few years that adjuvant therapy kind of became standard in non-small cell lung cancer.
1: You're right. There have been many studies that have attempted to look at chemotherapy, certainly back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but the studies were actually, unfortunately, not really very well designed in terms of the numbers of patients on studies. They tended to be very small, and the types of differences they were looking for were really rather unrealistic. And since that time, there have been a handful of studies that were Designed with more patients on study. These were studies of 500 or more patients total. And so they actually were powered enough, had a significant statistical power. And in fact, in the majority of those studies, did show a benefit with the addition of platin based combination chemotherapy.
0: You talked about the issue of comorbidities and how often there are these smoking related problems. What are some of the common conditions that you're evaluating and what are you specifically looking for in terms of, you know, evaluating the patient as a whole in terms of their overall health?
1: So, when evaluating a patient postoperatively and looking for their ability to tolerate therapy, again, The general view is performance status, just what is it they're able to do in terms of day-to-day function. Are they actually up and about and as good as they were before they got started, able to work and do all their full day-to-day activities? Or are they modestly affected and just require a little assistance with more rigorous activity? You probably don't want to allow a lesser performance status than that. Just like with, you know, considering chemotherapy for metastatic disease, you'd like a ECOG performance status of 0 to 1. Or if you use Karnofsky, you know, down to maybe 80 or 70. You want to be pretty cautious with these folks. And again, you know, you're looking at tobacco-related morbidities which typically affect the cardiovascular system and particularly the lungs in general. How affected are they and how much activity are they able to tolerate? Clearly, you would not want someone who is essentially bedridden to be considered for this type of chemotherapy.
0: Now within the different stages that you were mentioning before very broadly, what's the risk of cancer recurrence and how is that risk affected by adjuvant chemotherapy?
1: The cure rates for patients with resected non-small cell, of course, varies by the stage, as you alluded to. Stage 1, where you have just the tumor and no lymph nodes involved, and this includes lymph nodes that are in the lung and that have been sampled in what I described earlier, the mediastinum. The cure rate actually ranges from about 60 to 80 percent, depending on the size of the tumor, with the smallest tumors, of course, having the better cure rate. Stage 2 disease, where you have, again, regional lymph nodes involved, the nearby regional lymph nodes, the cure rate is actually in the range of about 40 to 55 percent. And then when it's spread to the mediastinum, the stage 3A patients, mediastinum on the same side, again, the lining of the esophagus or trachea, the cure rate can drop as low as about 15%, but more commonly around 20 to 25% with surgery alone. The effect of chemotherapy in terms of its benefit has ranged from study to study, from a low of about an absolute benefit of 5%. To as high as about 15% in some of the studies involving stage two patients. So I think the relative improvement is probably around 10 to 20%, and an absolute benefit of around 10 to 15%, I think is fair to say, particularly for the stage two and three patients. And I think what's very important for both the listener and patients, of course, to understand is that these ballpark figures are competitive with what we see in patients with breast and colon cancer, where it is clearly a long time standard of care to give adjuvant therapy in breast and colon cancer. In fact, I certainly can't think of a single patient or oncologist or nurse that would not think of giving adjuvant chemotherapy to a breast and colon patient. And I think we really should be there with these non-small cell lung cancer patients as well for those who of course are actually fit enough to receive therapy. Let's
0: talk a little bit about the choice of adjuvant chemotherapy regimens. What are the common regimens that are utilized right now, and how do people decide between these?
1: So the choices are typically platin based regimens, cisplatin or carboplatin. The most well-studied regimens that were done in clinical trials actually include some of the older regimens that we probably in the United States wouldn't even think of giving, but like cisplatin Cisplatin venerelbin is probably the most well-studied of the newer regimens, but I think what we uh, as oncologists in the United States have sort of assumed that some of the other newer agents, since they have comparative performance in metastatic disease, would do so in the adjuvant setting. So cisplatin and gemcitabine, cisplatin and docetaxel have also been utilized, and paclitaxel carboplatin, of course, has been utilized as well. And I think all of those are probably valid options in the adjuvant setting.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the potential side effects and complications of the common regimens that are utilized right now, the ones that you just mentioned?
1: The toxicities, for the most part, the similar toxicities, of course, relate to, I suppose, hair loss and myelosuppression. And those are pretty uniform. They may vary from regimen to regimen. Perhaps the cisplatin venerelbin, depending upon which of the Regimens you actually use for that combination might have the most myelosuppression, along with I suppose the dose of taxol-containing regimen as well. But those are uniform, and then you have ones that are unique to the particular agent. So the taxanes, the paclitaxel, of course, with cisplatin certainly can have neurologic peripheral neuropathies. That's less common with some of the other regimens. Vinarelbin may have its issues. In addition to myelosuppression, some of the GI toxicities maybe be ileus. taxol has some of the toxicities involve third-space fluid, ameliorated quite a bit by steroids that are utilized with it. You can get the perinechias with the dose of Taxol. And so I think that those, of course, need to be taken into context. And one of the things that I did allude to is the fact that virtually all of these regimens, particularly those that include cisplatin or paclitaxol, require pretreatment with corticosteroids and those have their own unique side effects that might be of concern for diabetic patients. It also, of course, just those high-dose corticosteroids can cause various either psychological effects or weight gain and those Cushingoid-type effects.
0: What about carboplatin versus cisplatin? What's the difference in terms of patient tolerability and risk?
1: I think the carboplatin versus cisplatin is a debate that's been talked about in oncologic and lung cancer in particular circles for a number of years. And there's emerging data that cisplatin may actually well prove to be a more active regimen that in the metastatic setting may not be as important when you're talking about quality of life issues because there is no doubt that cisplatin is a bit tougher to give. It can be done very successfully, but you certainly do have to pay attention a bit more than with carboplatin. Now, if in fact cisplatin proves to be a bit more active, certainly in the adjuvant setting it might be more critical when you're actually looking at the cure rate. And so I actually do tend to utilize to favor a cisplatin based regimen, particularly in those very good performance status patients. And I tend to reserve a carboplatin, paclitaxel type regimen for those patients who may be of borderline performance status or maybe over the age of, say, 75 or 80, that you're a little leery, perhaps, about chemotherapy despite good performance status.
0: Now, you talked about the use of paclitaxel as well as docetaxel in terms of taxanes in this situation, and oncology nurses are also familiar with another taxane that's come out and being used right now in breast cancer, and it's being studied in lung cancer, which is NAB, Paclitaxel, and Abraxane. I wonder if you can comment on where we are with NAB and where you see things heading, particularly in terms of what you were talking about before in terms of steroid premedications.
1: You know, the advantage, of course, for the NAB, Paclitaxel, and those types of agents are the absence of the need for premedication with dexamethasone and the associated side effects. Currently, however, their study in lung cancer has been rather minimal, and so I don't think it's ready for prime time in the adjuvant setting. We certainly would need to see some studies in the metastatic setting first to show comparability, at least comparability to the currently available taxanes, but it would be a step forward if in fact we were able to utilize it, again, without the various pretreatments.
0: What do we know about how NAB is playing out right now in metastatic disease in these first trials that are looking at it?
1: I think we're a little early. The jury, I think, is still out. I think there's the view that, you know, I mean, it is the similar agent, but it does have an interesting mechanism of action and, in theory, at least, could prove to be potentially better if the mechanism of actions that's been studied preclinically is true and turns out to be important. So you'll see more studies in the metastatic setting as well as the locally advanced setting with radiation therapy.
0: And we're getting some pretty encouraging hints with NAB and breast cancer that maybe it does have greater activity than the other taxanes. What is it about the mechanism that might you know result in greater efficacy?
1: Well, I think the concept of carrying it on, attaching it to sort of albumin-mediated carrier and the issue of the leaky vasculature, if you will, and then tumors, which may well allow for better penetration of this chemotherapy agent into the tumor directly. There's also the thought that there may actually be a more active transport mechanism that may be involved with this as well. And so the theory is there, and now we'll just have to see whether clinically that proves to be the case.
0: I'd like you to comment a little bit on where we're heading in terms of clinical research in adjuvant therapy and specifically two strategies that are being studied right now in large, randomized trials. One being the addition of the anti-VEGF agent bevacizumab to adjuvant chemotherapy, and the other, the use of erlotinib in patients thought to be at a greater likelihood of responding to a TKI. Can you kind of talk about those two different strategies and how that's rolling out right now in clinical trials?
1: I think that it's very well established that chemotherapy has now become the new standard of care. And as you suggest, we're attempting to build upon that with one of two mechanisms. I'll start with the bevacizumab first. Of course, ECOG 4599 showed that the addition of bevacizumab to paclitaxel carboplatin in metastatic disease provided a survival advantage over that same chemotherapy alone. And so that certainly was very exciting in and of its own right. But now the question is, can you translate that modest improvement in survival from the metastatic setting into an increased cure rate in the adjuvant setting, much like what one saw with Herceptin and breast cancer? And so ECOG 1505, which will be led by Heather Wakeley and will be an international study run through ECOG, but will include the NCI of Canada and the EORTC, will look at chemotherapy with or without Bevacizumab. There'll be a choice, of dealer's choice, of one of three cisplatin-based chemotherapy regimens, either with docetaxel, gemcitabine, or vinirelbin, four cycles of chemotherapy. The Bevacizumab will be on day one, through the four cycles, and then the Bevacizumab will continue for up to one year. And the end point of this study that will include 1,500 patients is survival. And so I think this will be a very interesting study. And this will include all histologies, since the tumors will have been removed, of course, in this adjuvant setting. So I think this will be a very interesting study, and that's, we hope, to start within the next month or two. Can
0: you talk a little bit about what the speculation is about why it is that bevacizumab improved the outcome when it was added to chemotherapy and metastatic disease? Of course, that ECOG trial is one that you actually led, what exactly does Bevacizumab do and why do you think it is that you saw better results with it on board?
1: I think that Bevacizumab and other probably VEGF-mediated agents or VEGF-directed agents have probably two distinct mechanisms of action. Number one, I think they do have, surprisingly in some degree perhaps, an effect on the tumor itself. As I alluded to, the tumors have sort of leaky vasculature and an anti-angiogenic agent like bevacizumab actually appears to help prune some of the newer vasculature, diminishing the leakiness and therefore allowing better drug penetration by decreasing the interstitial fluid pressures of the tumor. This was shown by Dr. Willette when he was at Harvard, who's now at Duke, in rectal cancer patients, showing decreased interstitial pressures in rectal tumors pre- and post- of a app. So that's one effect, providing better chemotherapy penetration to the tumor. Now that aspect would not, at least would not appear to be as important in the adjuvant setting, of which there is no tumor. But the other effect that is something that we all thought was very prominent, and I think we've forgotten about is the concept of eliminating or reducing the development of new vasculature for the initial microscopic and then small tumors stopping that new blood vessels from forming and then turning cancer into a chronic disease, if you will. And so it's hoped that that mechanism would play a major role in this.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about exactly what bevacizumab is, what VEGF is, you know, and how it functions normally in the body?
1: So VEGF is known as vascular endothelial growth factor. And I think it's an important point that you raise. We sometimes forget that some of these compounds and some of the proteins that are present, we sort of think are directly related to the tumor and not actually present in normal individuals. And so actually VEGF is elevated in response to what you would expect, low oxygen tension or elevated pH, situations in which there's poor blood flow. And an example of that would be cardiac ischemia, perhaps, you know, the elevations of VEGF would be there to develop the neovasculature in someone whose coronary arteries are narrowing. That would be a very positive aspect. The negative aspect comes when a tumor kind of kicks out the VEGF to develop new vasculatures for the tumor. That is something obviously we wouldn't want, and that's why we block it.
0: Now, can you talk a little bit about what the side effects and complications were that were seen in the advanced disease setting and what you think that might mean in terms of how this was going to play out in the early adjuvant setting?
1: So the two studies that have looked at chemotherapy and bevacizumab have been the phase two and then the phase three study that I alluded to. Toxicities include some proteinuria that occurs in significantly in maybe around 3% of patients, but really rarely impacts in stopping the drug or in renal dysfunction. High blood pressure, which typically is controlled with some antihypertensive medications. In the lung cancer patient, we did not see dramatic differences in terms of arterial or venous thrombotic events. But of course, the one issue that was critically important was pulmonary hemorrhage manifested by significant hemoptysis that appears to be more related with squamous cell histology. Now, although in the adjuvant study will include squamous cell histology, these tumors will have been removed surgically. So it's hoped that that will not be an issue, but delayed wound healing is something that could be important in someone who's undergone a major operation. And as such, we are delaying the onset of the adjuvant therapy in this setting from the average four to six weeks. We're going to wait till at least a minimum of six weeks to try and ensure better healing.
0: What is it about bevacizumab that causes a problem in terms of wound healing? Is angiogenesis part of wound healing?
1: Right. It's thought that angiogenesis is a very important aspect of wound healing. Again, much like I mentioned with you know, coronary artery ischemia, you need new blood vessels when you have a cut and you're developing new tissue to heal that area, to heal the wound. Neovascular is very important.
0: I think we've gotten sensitized to the issue, and I guess we should mention that bevacizumab is being looked at now in the adjuvant setting in colon cancer and breast cancer as well as in lung cancer. So there's been a lot of sensitivity to this issue of wound healing after major surgery, but what about more minor surgery, placement of a port, I mean even dental work? How does that tie into bevacizumab?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question and things that were sort of evolving. I think for minor procedures, the rule of thumb is to try and wait at least a couple of weeks, obviously not schedule anything in the midst of getting the bevacizumab, but hold it beyond the typical three-week that you see in lung cancer for an additional couple of weeks.
0: You mentioned the pulmonary hemorrhage that's been seen in the advanced cancer studies, How often was this seen, and what is thought about why it occurs?
1: So the issue of the pulmonary hemorrhage was... The earliest study was seemed to be across the board. Half of them occurred early in the first few cycles of therapy, and the other half even as much as six months out. In ECOC 4599, virtually all of them occurred within the first two or three cycles of treatment. And it's thought that it may well be related to a very brisk response with the treatment, where the tumor actually suffers central necrosis and cavitation, again presumably disrupting the blood vessels and resulting in hemoptysis. What's not as clear is whether size or location of the tumor matters. It really hasn't appeared to be the case. We did do a case control analysis that presented at ASCO last year that suggested baseline cavitation may be important and baseline hemoptysis. It's still in evolution as to all the critical issues and what in fact we do. We certainly know that shouldn't be given to a lung cancer patient with gross hemoptysis or squamous cell histology. Again, I suspect that this won't be important for the adjuvant study.
0: And I guess the idea there is there isn't a visible tumor to cavitate. It's all microscopic, so hopefully you're not going to see these kinds of bleeds. Right. And what was the frequency that this occurred?
1: So the frequency of what we call grade three plus significant, you know, gross hemoptysis that occurred was about 2.1 percent for chemotherapy with bevacizumab versus 0.5 percent seen on the chemotherapy alone arm. So it was statistically significant, although the overall numbers were fairly modest. The incidence of death due to pulmonary hemorrhage was 1.2 percent.
0: Let's switch over to the other major biologic strategy that's now being looked at in clinical trials in adjuvant therapy, which is the use of a TKI, oral TKI, specifically erlotinib. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how erlotinib works and what the strategy is behind the adjuvant trials looking at this?
1: So erlotinib is an EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor, so the epidermal growth factor receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Unlike bevacizumab, which is a very large antibody, this is a small molecule given orally that works intracellularly at the level of what's called the tyrosine kinase domain, the activation site for the EGFR receptor and prevents a lot of the downstream effects that could include a proangiogenic response, proliferation, inhibition of apoptosis. What's been shown is that giving these agents such as jafitnib or allotinib with chemotherapy in the metastatic setting did not prove to be successful because it's felt actually that these agents place the malignant cells in that level of the cell cycle that makes it less responsive to chemotherapy, the G2M phase, I believe. But what's thought is that it might have a benefit in certain subsets of patients who either overexpress the receptor, have a mutation, or have increased gene copies by FISH analysis. And so in these groups of patients, as opposed to giving it to all patients, in these groups of patients, it might be beneficial after receiving the adjuvant chemotherapy. So the design of the study, again, is for folks with resected non-small cell lung cancer to receive chemotherapy with or without the EGFR, TK inhibitor, or lotinib. I also believe that they do allow patients who are not interested in chemotherapy to be randomized to observation or erlotinib, I believe.
0: Now, can you talk a little bit more about the ways that we've developed to identify these patients who might be a greater chance of responding to agents like erlotinib and sort of what the EGFR mutations are that have been seen in tumors and also where smoking status fits in?
1: The story with erlotinib is certainly an interesting one in that when the research was initially done on these agents, it was actually thought that the patients that might benefit the most from an EGFR TK inhibitor were actually male smokers with squamous cell because it appeared as if those groups of patients actually overexpressed the EGFR receptor the most. Subsequently, when the clinical trials were completed, the patients that had the most breathtaking responses to treatment tended to be women with adenocarcinoma who were never smokers some wonderful work that's been done by several investigators in Boston, such as Tom Lynch and Passiani, as well as New York, uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, is the idea that these subsets of patients, which also actually included patients from Japan, is that a mutation was found in exon 19 or 21. Some of these are deletion mutations or point mutations. But The idea was that these cells then, or the tumors, became exquisitely more sensitive to EGFR pathway, and so inhibition of this pathway became more critically important in abrogating the pro-tumor effects of the EGFR pathway, and so the response rates in these groups of patients much higher. Some studies have shown response rates 70-80% as frontline therapy. It's less clear the impact on survival. We all expect it to have an impact on survival, but preliminary studies such as BR21, when they went back, a randomized study of placebo versus erlotinib, didn't seem to confer a survival advantage to these groups of patients. That's also open to discussion. There's certain controversies about that, which I'll leave alone for now. But I think at least it's worthwhile looking at these certain subsets of patients with mutations, increased gene copy, or even overexpression as groups that may potentially be more sensitive to its effect, and that's why they're restricting the adjuvant study to those groups.
0: How about smoking?
1: Smoking history, the never-smokers are the ones that tend to have a higher incidence of mutation. Smokers also may have a RAS mutation, a different mutation that makes it very unlikely to respond to these agents as well. A point that's probably worth mentioning is that in the study of erlotinib versus placebo in the second and third line setting, there actually was a survival advantage seen in all subsets of patients that included smokers, men versus women, Caucasians versus Asians, etc. They didn't have the as dramatic responses, but the survival actually was longer with patients who received the agent.
0: You know, this is one of the few situations, at least, that I can think of in clinical oncology where you can sort of match up a potentially causal factor or risk factor to develop the tumor and how they respond to a therapy. Why is it, do you think, that a patient who develops lung cancer was a non-smoker would have sort of a different kind of a tumor than those who developed it after having smoked?
1: The thought is that an individual who's a smoker is exposing themselves to, of course, a myriad of carcinogens each of which is certainly capable of inducing genetic damage resulting in certain accentuation of certain pathways and most likely multiple pathways, therefore diluting the effect of perhaps one pathway. And so the inhibition of one pathway would not be enough to sort of kill the tumor, as opposed to the non-smokers where the genetic damage is less and the likelihood of relying on one pathway is greater.
0: What have we seen in terms of side effects and complications with the oral TKIs and specifically erlotinib in the metastatic setting, and how do you think that's going to translate to its use in clinical trials in the adjuvant situation?
1: The side effects from agents such as erlotinib are certainly far different from chemotherapy and, in general, much milder. The side effects, however, can be bothersome to some patients in that there is a rash and there may be some mild diarrhea which again, relative to having neutropenic fevers, certainly is less and is more of a cosmetic issue. And so in the metastatic setting, second-line and third-line setting, I think those kinds of toxicities are certainly tolerated given the other options. It may be more difficult, as it is difficult, to talk about chemotherapy with a patient whose tumor has been completely removed and say, look, your tumor is removed, you may already be cured, but I'd like to give you something else such as chemotherapy, where it's not an automatic yes for patients to agree to it, although I personally think that it should be. And Erlotin may fall in a similar category given the rash and depending upon how brisk the rash is in a given patient.
0: And it's interesting because a number of the biologic agents cause rash and not just erlotinib and are being looked at in the adjuvant setting. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, you know, the issue of hair loss. As you say, it is a cosmetic issue, but, you know, when you look at erlotinib, if it's going to be given for a year to have, you know, maybe a deforming or uncomfortable rash for that period of time, it'll be interesting to see how patients sort of weigh that in terms of the trade-off about maybe being able to avoid death from lung cancer. Right. How do you think it's going to play out?
1: I think that it will be interesting. I think there will be some patients who, you know, start on the study, but if they get a significant rash, they may, and it's not controlled to their liking, may opt out. And I think programs, you know, such as the ones that you do, providing information to both the treating physicians, nurses, and patients, will be needed to educate patients and the medical staff as well that it's important to try and get these patients through it. I am certain that there are groups of folks, both the patients and treating physicians, who may not be treating the rash as aggressively as could be. And that's going to be critically important to try and get patients through the treatment.
0: How have you yourself approached the issue of management and prevention of rash?
1: We take a fairly aggressive approach in that everybody who started on lot neb we immediately discuss using emollients. And, you know, it's interesting because a rash looks like acne, but it's important not to treat it as such in certain fashions. You know, sunlight makes it worse, for example, as opposed to acne, where that might make it better. Emollients are actually very helpful in this. If they develop a rash through the emollients alone, we add an antibiotic cream. And if they're still having difficulty, we'll add an oral antibiotic. And that really helps probably over 90%. There's very few patients that you can't get them through that. If necessary, we'll of course hold therapy for five to seven days and then reduce the dose.
0: You know, it's interesting to think about the issue of the patient perspective on this in terms of trade offs. You know, are you willing to consider going through various side effects in order to, you know, improve your? statistically the chance of remaining disease free although as you mentioned the patients may already be cured unfortunately we can't determine that but there've been a number of surveys of patients and in fact our CME groups have done surveys in breast colon and prostate cancer of patients actually we haven't done it in lung cancer what we've seen in those other three tumors and other people have reported it is that there's a subset segment of patients who are extraordinarily interested in reducing their risk of relapse and you know you hear the figure bantied around in breast cancer of a significant number of women willing to go through chemotherapy for a 1% reduction in relapse rate. We just reported at the ASCO GI meeting almost the same exact findings in colorectal cancer, but also a spectrum of how people respond to this, some people willing to go through anything, other people who won't go through therapy even for a very significant benefit. What do you think we would see if we surveyed lung cancer patients?
1: I, of course, think that the spectrum will be the same. I suspect the percentages may be different. With the median age of lung cancer in the States, about 69 or 70, I think there will be a larger percentage of patients who would be willing to tolerate less side effects and would require an increase in benefit. I think there will be fewer patients who would be willing to tolerate chemotherapy for an absolute improvement of 1%.
0: Now, we've talked about the clinical research strategy of using biologics in the adjuvant setting, bevacizumab or erlotinib. Do you think it would be reasonable to offer, for example, bevacizumab as adjuvant therapy in a non-protocol setting, or would it be reasonable in uh, patients who have the mutation or non-smokers to offer erlotinib outside of a protocol setting?
1: I think that Caution would probably be the more appropriate approach at this point. I think there's still plenty to learn with these agents, and I would in particular relate back to the Jafitinib swag study in locally advanced where patients received chemo and radiation followed by placebo versus Jafitinib, in which I don't think anyone would have thought that there could potentially be any problems with that particular agent. But in fact, the placebo arm did, I don't know if it's officially statistically significant, but the placebo arm did dramatically better than the gefitinib. And of course, the study was stopped. So I would say at this particular point that I would wait and not offer either of those agents outside of a clinical trial in the adjuvant setting. One
0: final question in terms of biologic therapy before we talk a little bit about metastatic disease. We've talked about anti-VEGF therapy, the bevacizumab, anti-EGFR therapy with erlotinib. And there are other agents coming out that seem to have sort of a combination of effects. And one in particular, it seems like maybe it's starting to get close to being potentially used in lung cancer, Zactima. Can you talk a little bit about what that agent is and sort of what we know about how it works?
1: Zactima, or ZD6474, is an agent that is another small molecule oral agent that works on the tyrosine kinase domain of both EGFR and VEGF. So from a preclinical perspective, it's a fascinating agent. And again, the concept of combining both of those has actually, if I may mention, is something that Roy Herbst at and MD Anderson and myself studied with combining erlotinib and bevacizumab, showing some very interesting data in the second line plus setting in patients with non-squamous, non-small cell, where we had a 20% response rate and a 12.6 month survival. And then more recently, confirmed in a randomized phase two study with improvements in time to progression from three to four and a half months in patients adding bevacizumab to either chemotherapy or erlotinib in that setting as compared to chemotherapy alone. And actually, that'll have a survival advantage as well or improvement in survival that we've submit it to JCO. So I think that that concept is interesting, and whether or not you can package that in a single agent will be interesting. And there is some preliminary randomized phase two data with Zactima going head-to-head with Jafitnib, showing improvement in progression-free survival, and then adding it to docetaxel that looked better than docetaxel alone, albeit just the lower dose, which may well be a more pure VEGF inhibitory compound at that point. But nonetheless, I believe there are randomized phase 3 studies ongoing and should have our answers in a couple of years.
0: What about the side effects and tolerability of Zactima?
1: The tolerability is good, and the side effects seem to be what you'd expect with combining both those blockade. You can get a rash, you get some mild diarrhea, some hypertensive effects. What's interesting is these oral VEGF inhibitors, of which you know, Zactima would be considered one, is whether or not they have the same issues with pulmonary hemorrhage. The original thought was that it did not, Although now, I think every one of the agents has at least one patient who's suffered a fatal pulmonary hemorrhage. And so I think the jury is still out on that.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the patient with metastatic disease. And we'll talk about, for example, a common situation of a patient presenting with stage four non-small cell lung cancer. Can you talk a little bit about some of the factors that you consider as you start to put together a treatment plan?
1: Well, for metastatic disease... We used to not pay much attention to histology, and I guess that's now one of the biggest changes. Certainly, chemotherapy is now, of course, well-established as a standard of care for the good performance status patient with doublet therapy, platinum based doublet therapy for the good performance status patient, and even potentially for the PS2 patients, but that's another topic. But for the good performance status patients, platinum-based therapy, and now with the ECOG 4599, Paclitaxol, Carboplatin, and Bevacizumab for those patients with non-squamous, non-small cell, not on anticoagulation and with no evidence of CNS metastases as was written in that clinical trial. And so therefore now histology is something that's important to look at and pay attention to.
0: So what tend to be some of the different regimens that you'll think about using as a first-line therapy metastatic disease?
1: Well, in terms of the regiments, I think there's a lot of choices, the platinum based regiments. I think there's a lot of studies that are out there now that have compared various doublets among themselves and have shown them to be fairly similar in terms of survival. There are different toxicities. There are different economic issues, of course. But I think, you know, paclitaxel carboplatin, carboplatin and gemcitabine, cisplatin with any of those regimens that I mentioned before, venerelbin, docetaxel, gemcitabine are certainly all reasonable. And I think so all of those choices are viable. I think the issue of combining with bevacizumab is a bit more complicated because the data is not completely there, although I suspect we'll see in the very near future that combining those doublets with bevacizumab is very feasible, and certainly there's no reason to think that the bevacizumab wouldn't be able to combine well with those other doublets.
0: How do you think through second-line therapy after the patients receive first-line therapy and now is getting worse?
1: In the second-line setting, you essentially have three choices with Olympta, docetaxol and erlotinib. All of those very reasonable. The way I go about evaluating those patients is if they did very well with chemotherapy, that is, if they responded nicely, tolerated it well, and had a nice long-lived response, I would certainly consider going to one of the two chemotherapy agents, Taxol or Olympta. If they did not respond to chemotherapy or very short-lived or lots of side effects, I think erlotinib is a very good choice in the second-line setting. Additionally, if you have a patient who is a never-smoker, female, adenocarcinoma, or of Asian descent, that also would raise the consideration for erlotinib in the second-line setting.
0: How do you go about deciding between docetaxel and olympta or pemetrexate?
1: I tend to do that based, again, perhaps on performance status. I think a LIMPTA may be a little bit better tolerated, and so I'd be more inclined to utilize that in someone whose performance status was a bit more borderline. Otherwise, I take somewhat an empiric approach, although I do understand that there is data that may be conflicted on this. But if someone's received a taxane in the first-line setting, I'd probably be more apt to utilize a LIMPTA, If they received an antimetabolite or an agent like gemcitabine in the frontline setting, I'd probably be more inclined to utilize docetaxel.
0: Now, what's the dose and schedule that you use for these two agents, and what are the comparative side effects?
1: Dosataxel would be 75 milligrams every three weeks. Olympta would be 500 milligrams, both of those per meter squared, 75 per meter squared, 500 milligrams per meter squared every three weeks. And of course with pemetrexid, remembering to utilize the folic acid and B12 at least a week before starting. But the side effects, there's more myelosuppression with the taxol, and there is hair loss and there's less of both, certainly with the Olympto. Possibly less fatigue with the Olympto as well.
0: What about the patient who has had a really good response to the combination of carbotaxol and bevacizumab? Are there situations where you think it's justifiable to keep the bevacizumab going and then just switch to chemotherapy, kind of like what's been done in breast cancer with trastuzumab?
1: Well, the easiest answer to that is we don't know. There certainly is some preclinical rationale to suggest that the tumor itself may not be resulting in resistance to the bevacizumab. And so changing the chemotherapy, you still might be receiving the same benefits from the bevacizumab with additional agents. And so it's reasonable to do. I have not tended to do that yet. We're hoping to do a study that would compare continuation of bevacizumab or not in the second line setting in ECOG. And so I guess I'd sort of leave it like that. I think it's an interesting concept, and I can understand the rationale behind that.